reading is taken from Revelation, verse 1 to 18. A great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon, and and with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pangs, in the agony of giving birth. Then another portent appeared in heaven, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Then the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child so that he might devour her child as soon as it was born. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is who is to rule all nations with the rod of iron, but her child was snatched away and taken to God and his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, so that there she can be nourished for 1,260 days. And war broke out in the heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, the dragon and his angels fought back, but they were defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, but the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven proclaiming, Now I have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our comrades has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. But they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they did not cling to life even in the face of death. Rejoice then, you heavens and those who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you with great wrath, because he, because he knows that time is short. So when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two, two wings of a great eagle, that so, so that she could fly from the serpent into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. Then from his mouth the serpent poured water like a river after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman. It opened its mouth and swallowed the the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. Then the dragon was angry with the woman and went to make war on the rest of her children, those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus, the dragon took his stand on the stand of the seashore. Our next reading is taken from Isaiah chapter 14, verses 3 to 4 and 10 to 15. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased, how his insolence has ceased. All of them will speak and say to you, you too have become as weak as we, you have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, and the sand of your harps, maggots are the bed beneath you, and worms are your covering. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. 
How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly on the heights of Zaphon. I will ascend to the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to shale, to the depths of the pit. It's really good to be here with you today. And I'd like to first extend my thanks to Tim and to Jack for opening the pulpit to me and allowing me to come here and hold forth on what uh, my wife has occasionally accused of being my favourite subject, which is the book of Revelation. Um, I often say it's the closest thing the Bible gets to sci-fi, and I read a lot of sci-fi as a teenager, so I figured I'd stay with a similar genre. Just before we get into that, I have one further small connection with this church, which I'd just like to put at the front, which is, uh, I, know, I know Sylvia, you're here, but uh, Sylvia's mum, Mrs. Young, as she was known to me, very definitely, uh, is, is one of those people who, to the best of my knowledge, prayed for me every day of my life, from the day I was born to the day she died. And the little book that I wrote that Tim referred to, I, I put a thing about it in a Christmas card one year, and she bought a copy, and she wrote to me in, in terrible handwriting, because her, her eyesight was failing, the most wonderful review of the book which she had read, and it's one of my most precious things. So I just wanted to, to say that about, about Mrs Young, and to, it's good to be here and remember her as well. But let's turn to Revelation chapter 12, which is uh, one of those chapters, isn't it? Um, Well, I don't know if anybody has been watching the Amazon Prime TV series, Lucifer, which tells the story of Lucifer Morningstar, the king of heaven, who becomes the lord of hell uh, and then gets bored and retires to LA to run a nightclub. It kind of becomes a a, a bit of a police procedurals drama. It's based on a story by Neil Gaiman, which in my book gives it a great start, because I love Neil Gaiman's uh, fantasy writing. And Liz and I have been enjoying watching it recently. We're partway through the first series at the moment. Uh, We're we're enjoying it, not least because this guy, uh, the actor who plays Lucifer, is somebody we knew uh, very well when he was a teenager. He's the son of a Baptist minister, and Liz and I were members at that church, and uh, we led the youth group for a while, and he was in it. I actually taught him to drive. But the connection has faded in these days, although I still know his parents very well. Um, But it it kind of gives me a way into thinking about this passage, because this is a passage which has... Uh, a lot of stuff in it that becomes part of the Lucifer myth. We'll come back to Lucifer in a few moments. But there's something else about this series that struck me as maybe being helpful uh, in uh, helping us understand the rather vivid passage from Revelation we're looking at this morning. Because when when you go to watch this series, each episode begins with a, a brief recap of the story so far. A kind of you know way of reminding the viewer what's gone before and helping them catch up should they have missed the last episode or to remind them of what's important. Basically, at the beginning of each episode, you get a compressed version of the previous episode. Most of the dialogue cut out, but enough glimpses of the drama to make sure you know what's going on. And I think this is pretty much what John is doing in the book of Revelation chapter 12 with the story of the woman, her son and the dragon. I'm going to put a few pictures up. These are photos that I've taken on various travels. Uh, If you get bored with what I'm saying, at least you've got some pretty pictures to look at. 
Uh, this is the Rila Monastery. We were in uh, Bulgaria earlier, uh, about last month, and uh, fantastic 19th century ceiling murals. So, the woman, her son, and the dragon. We're about halfway through the book here, and John basically does a bit of a recap to remind his readers what's gone before and make sure they haven't missed anything important. But in typical Book of Revelation style, rather than just saying it straight out, John uses some vivid imagery to make his point. And so we meet his story of the woman and her child and the wicked dragon. And John uses these three characters to give his readers, in effect, a kind of potted spiritual history of the entire world. So the woman he uses to represent Israel the faithful people of God down the ages. The 12 tribes of Israel are represented in her crown of 12 stars, for example. And then the woman gives birth to a child, who we're told is going to shepherd the nations. And here we meet a picture of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ, coming into the world through the nation of Israel, being born from within the people of God. The woman who represents Israel gives birth to a child, which is the Jewish Messiah, who is the Messiah to shepherd all the nations. And then we meet the dragon, the evil one, thrown out of heaven for bad behaviour, presumably to walk the earth wreaking havoc. And that, you might be tempted to think, is that. A woman representing Israel, her son representing Jesus the Messiah, a dragon representing all the forces of evil opposed to the work of the Son. But of course, this is the book of Revelation. Nothing is ever so straightforward here, either in terms of the original images and what they might have meant for the original readers, but also in terms of the way they go on to function within the Christian tradition. And over the next few minutes, I'd like us to look at each of these three characters to see what we can learn about them and perhaps to think about what we might learn from them. And as we do so, I hope we can begin to unpack the way John used these characters and see what they might have meant to his original readers in the seven churches of Asia Minor. I, I don't know what date you've been going with for the book of Revelation when you've been explaining it. I pitch it at about 71. So we're, we're sort of somewhere around 40-ish years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, about the same time as the Gospel of Matthew, maybe, that kind of period, maybe. Um, so, it might be helpful to have a couple of key questions in mind as we go through. Firstly, why is life so difficult? And secondly, why is it worth persevering with following Jesus? And these would have been really real questions for John's first readers. We're following Jesus, the Prince of the Universe, but why is life still so hard? And secondly, given that life does appear to still be so hard, is it really worth this massive battle of persevering? The first is a question really about the problem of evil in the world. Why is there evil in the world? And the second one is a question about the place of faith in the face of evil. And these questions, of course, aren't relevant just to the first century. They're relevant to us. I thought the prayers we had led for us earlier, it was, was it Rosemary who led the prayers? It was just fantastic, reminding us of how we struggle to bring before God all of the evil and difficulties in, in the wider world and in the world as we experience it. And is it really worth this? What, we keep doing this week after week. Nothing seems to change. Well, why, why should we carry on? So let's start with the great dragon. 
We meet the great dragon for the first time in the book of Revelation here in this story of the pregnant woman. He crops up again a bit later. The dragon is described as an astrological constellation, a bit like one of the signs of the zodiac. So you know when you get that thing where they do a kind of join the dots with the star map and you get, you know, there's a, there's a plough or there's a lion or something like that. Uh, well, they're seeing a dragon at this point mapped out in the heavens, body mapped out in the stars. And in the ancient world, of course, astrological events were understood as reflecting the activities of the gods. And the boundary between astronomy, the kind of science of studying the stars, and astrology, which we, you know, frankly tends to look down on a bit these days as being a bit of a pseudo thing, well, the boundary in those days between those two was quite blurred. We get this in the Christmas story, don't we, with the wise men following a star, and it turns out it does lead them to Jesus. So, you know, who knows? Maybe God works in mysterious ways sometimes. So we've got the dragon mapped out in the heavens. If we do a bit of digging back into the Old Testament, we can begin to understand why John might give us this image in the way that he does. So the Jewish background to the dragon from Revelation can be found in a creature called the Leviathan. Uh, If you know the book of Job or the Psalms, some of the Psalms or the book of Isaiah, Uh, you'll know the name the Leviathan. This was a mythical, sea-dwelling, serpentine dragon that represented in the mythology of the ancient Jews the primeval forces of evil, which arise from the chaos of the deep. The sea is always a, a force of chaos. It's unpredictable. It's dangerous. And these forces of evil represented by the Leviathan arise from the deep to oppose the people and purposes of God. And John writes that onto the stars and says this is part of the makeup of the cosmos. There is just this evil that is out there. And so the dragon, as depicted by John in Revelation, has seven heads and seven crowns, indicative of its appearance of perfection, seven being the Jewish number of perfection, and then ten horns, indicative of its power. Um, I don't know if you've ever noticed about artwork to do with the book of Revelation. This stuff's really easy to describe. It's incredibly hard to draw in a way that is anything other than massively naff. I mean, here we've got a 13th century author trying to do it in stained glass. But if you Google images of things like the lamb with the lots of horns or the dragon with the many heads, they they all seem quite contrived because you can kind of describe them and you begin to get a picture of them in your head. But then when you look at them, you go, that just looks silly. (laughs) Anyway. So, the, uh, the, the dragon, the force of evil that's been written on the cosmos, uh, his tail drags a third of the stars from heaven down to the earth, anticipating the results of the fight that he has with Michael, where the dragon and his angels are cast from heaven to the earth. So the theology behind this is that there is some kind of force of evil at work in the cosmos, but that this actually has an effect on the lived reality and the lived lives of those living on the earth and living in the seven churches to which John is writing. Then as the story goes on in verse 4 of chapter 12, the dragon positions itself for an unsuccessful attack on the Christ child. And I think here we've got an echo of another Christmas story. This is the attempt by Herod to take the life of the infant Jesus. Just, just there. You know, I said this is the potted history of the whole history of the world, in spiritually, in one little story. Then we get God's being seen protecting his people, leading them out into the desert for a wilderness experience that parallels that of the people of Israel in Old Testament times. You remember the story of the people of Israel fleeing Egypt with Moses leading them through the waters of the Red Sea and then they spend their 40 years wandering in the wilderness on their way to promised land. And so 
in John's story in Revelation, the woman, the people of God, is led into the wilderness to be nourished for a time. And this is where John is locating the people of God. It's us. We're we're wilderness people. We're out of slavery, but we're not yet at promised land. So the, the idea of the people of Israel in the wilderness of old becomes a metaphor, a symbol, for where John wants his readers to see themselves. And this might be why it's so tough sometimes. Following the battle with Michael, the dragon is cast to the earth together with his angels, identified as Satan. And the dragon continues to pursue the woman who symbolises the people of God. He attempts to sweep her away with a flood that comes from his mouth. And eventually he becomes angry that she keeps escaping and sets off to make war on her other children before finally taking his stand on the seashore. And all of this is setting the context for the relationship between the forces of evil that exist in the world and the lived daily experience of those in the churches John's writing to. We're in the territory of our first question here, that of why there is such evil in the world. And so the persecution facing the congregations to which John's writing is presented here as the angry attacks of the dragon, as he deceives the inhabitants of the earth to oppose the people of God. The greatest strength of evil, I think, is always that of deception. Good people, or at least indifferent people, can do really terrible things if they're deceived into doing them. I think that's, that's really where evil gets its greatest strength. I live in horror that I might do something really evil one day, believing I'm doing the right thing because I've been deceived into doing it. Do you, know, do you know that kind of thing where you think, what's the right answer here? Well, the Hebrew word Satan is used here by John to describe the dragon. So here we're beginning to get him named. And of course, if you know your Hebrew, which I hope you do, uh, the word Satan simply means adversary. It's not a proper name, actually. It's, it's, it's just the word for adversary. And in the Old Testament, uh, we meet a, a number of Satans, actually, a number of adversaries. Uh, we get a, a being described as a Satan in 1 Chronicles, prompting David to um, disobey God and conduct a census of the people. Uh, it's probably a reference to a human being whispering in David's ear and giving him some bad advice. And he's, this human being is he's called a Satan. In the book of Job, Satan appears as one of the heavenly beings who has been walking about on the earth and ends up making a bet with God about whether he can make Job curse God or not. And he says, Job, you're only worshipping God because he's having such a nice life. If we make his life terrible, he won't worship God anymore. So there, that's Satan as a description of one of the heavenly beings, functioning as a bit of an adversary. Let's test. Let's test Job. Let's see if his faithfulness holds in the face of some kind of adversity. And in the prophecy of Zechariah, we meet a Satan as a prosecuting counsel in the heavenly courtroom. Not dissimilar to the function in Job, actually. You know, putting the other point of view, arguing the toss to see where truth lies. And it's this final notion of Satan as one who opposes that lies, of course, behind Jesus' description of Peter as a Satan in Matthew's Gospel. You know the famous phrase, get behind me, Satan, because you're tempting me? It's worth noting that Satan in Scripture is only ever the enemy of humanity and not the enemy of God. It is not biblical to think of Satan as a kind of bad God or even as a good angel gone bad. 
I know in our Christian world we often use it in that way, but if you want to take a biblical view of these things, I'm afraid to tell you that's not there. The notion of Satan as one who has fallen comes from Jesus in Luke's Gospel, where he says, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. But it seems here to be much more a reference to the effects of Jesus' own ministry, where Jesus was sending out the 72 and and, and their works of power are causing the works of deception to become unmasked. And it doesn't necessarily, and I don't think it does refer to, some ancient time where Jesus is in a vision catching a glimpse at the beginning of time where some Satan is cast out from heaven, in, in, you know, perhaps before, before Eden or something like that. We do get a few fallen angels in the book of Jude, uh, but that's a passage derivative of a book called One Enoch, which if you've not read it, I do recommend it if you fancy reading some ancient Jewish apocalyptic But that doesn't convey any concept of evil angels being expelled from heaven before the fall of Adam. So here I'm just doing a little bit of myth-busting. And I'd like to myth-bust the idea that Satan is the name of a character who fell from heaven. I'd like to myth-bust particularly the idea that Satan is Lucifer. Do you remember my little picture with which we started? I mean, we all know Lucifer, don't we? We all know the Lucifer myth. The morning star of heaven cast down to rule hell and cause evil on the earth, popularised in TV programmes the world over. I'm afraid this is nothing more than a total misreading of our Old Testament reading for this morning. In the book of Isaiah, we meet an insult being offered to the Babylonian king. What Isaiah says is that the Babylonian king is the morning star. The morning star, of course, is Venus. You ever see sometimes, you look at the sky in the morning, there's one star that's still visible, it's the planet Venus, still shining in the sky. Then as the sun reaches its full strength and the sky lightens, Venus disappears from view. So the insult that is being offered by Isaiah to the Babylonian king is that the Babylonian king is the morning star. He might look glorious at the beginning of the day, but as the true light of the true God rises in the sky... So the Babylonian king will fall out of the sky and be visible no more. It's just an insult. Well, what you may wonder, does this have to do with the identification of the morning star as Lucifer, the fallen angel otherwise known as Satan? Well, I'm afraid it all comes down to a translation error. When Isaiah was translated into Latin, the Hebrew word for morning star, or Venus, was translated as light giver, which for those of you who know your Latin, and I did do a bit at school, you get lux meaning light and ferre meaning bringer, and you put lux ferre together and run them together, you get lucifer. The word lucifer does not even appear in the Bible in the original languages, and it only appears as a Latin mistranslation of the Hebrew word for morning star. Certainly, biblically, Lucifer is no name for Satan. What happened, of course, is in the Christian tradition, this Latinism for Lightbringer, which is Luxifer, becomes Lucifer, becomes combined with various other biblical traditions about an angel who's been cast from the heavens and becomes an alternate name for Satan. And we might want to blame people like um, Dante and Milton, and if you know your, your, your medieval uh, writings, that's where a lot of that comes from. If you want to go back to the Bible, as the Baptists who tends to do, it's just not there. I'm really sorry. So anyway, uh, 
The word Satan is never a proper name in the Bible. Any, when our Bibles capitalise it, they get it wrong. It's always a description of a role. It's a job description. It's always the Satan or a Satan, in the same way as one might say the prosecutor or an adversary. So, where do we go with this? Well, it unmasks all of the stuff about Genesis and the snake being the devil or Lucifer or Satan. All of that begins to fall apart as well. The huge irony is that in the end, in the popular mindset of both Christians and culture more widely, including Amazon Prime, these characters have ended up becoming much more closely associated with the construct of Satan than the actual passages that mention Satan at all. So we just need, if we're going to begin to unpick what's going on in the book of Revelation, to do this huge mindset change where we take everything we think we know and set it on one side, having looked at it, because actually it's not there in the text. It's all later Christian construct, running down through uh, Justin Martyr and Tertullian and Irenaeus and Oregon and Milton and Dante. We need to get back to Revelation chapter 12, our brief and vivid story giving us a potted spiritual history of the world. And so we're back to our dragon. And John invites his readers, he invites us really, to realise that the people of God are in the wilderness on their journey from slavery to promised land and that this dragon is still out there metaphorically poised to make war on anyone who owes their allegiance to the Messiah Jesus Christ. You do not get an easy ride as a Christian. Evil is real and evil is out there seeking to deceive and oppose And this would have made perfect sense to John's first audience. They only had to look around them to see ample evidence that the dragon was poised to strike because the Roman Empire towered over the congregations of the faithful like a mighty beast set on their destruction. And the people of God in John's churches were living out their lives in the shadow of the Roman imperial dragon with the seven heads of the dragon echoing the seven hills of Rome. And in the face of this evil, John is seeking to present his readers with an alternative way of viewing their lived reality. And as he does all the way through the book of Revelation, he offers them the heavenly perspective on their earthly situation. John is always trying to prepare his readers for their difficult task of holding firm to the truth of the gospel and overcoming evil as they endure faithfully witnessing to the end. I'm spending more time on the dragon than the other two, by the way, so we're more than halfway, you'll be pleased to know. But having looked at the dragon, the great Satan, we do come to the character of the pregnant woman. This is a photo I took in uh, Marienplatz in Munich. This is an image which combines a whole number of strands that lie behind this often misunderstood image. There are a number of significant maternal figures from within the Jewish and Christian traditions which anticipate what John does with this woman in chapter 12. So if you think back to Genesis, you've got Mother Eve. Uh, In Isaiah, you've got Mother Israel and Mother Jerusalem. In the Gospels, we meet Mother Mary. In Paul's letter to the Romans, we meet Mother Creation. And in addition to these Jewish and Christian images, there are also classical mythological echoes in John's image as well. So we've got the Greek myths of Gaia, the Earth Mother, and of Leto, the wife of Zeus, the mother of the twins, Artemis and Apollo, the Egyptian myth of Isis, the mother of Horus. And the thing is, in all of these traditions, both Jewish and Christian or pagan, the mother is threatened at the point of childbirth. 
not just through the natural dangers of delivering a child, but also through external forces seeking to endanger the child. So in John's story of this pregnant woman, it makes perfect sense that the mother is endangered both by the pain of childbirth and by the forces of evil. And within John's scheme, the pregnant woman is symbolic of the people of God down the ages, from ancient times right up to the present day. She's introduced, like the dragon, in cosmological terms as another sign in the heavens. So she's crowned with the 12 stars, symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. She's standing on a moon. In Christian artwork, the woman from Revelation 12 is often painted as an image of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And if any of you have got a Catholic background, a Roman Catholic background, you'll know that in Catholic art, Mary is often depicted as this woman from Revelation 12. I wouldn't go so far as to say John doesn't have Mary in mind as part of this image, but I don't think that's the whole story. I think he's got a much wider view of motherhood here than just one woman. And of particular significance to the interpretation of this image is the mother Sarah, wife of Abraham. Because it brings into being the covenant that God made with Abraham. The image of a pregnant Sarah whose miraculous child will be a blessing to all the nations, is integral to the fulfilment of covenant promise that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed through the descendants of Abraham and Sarah. It's always been a bit of a puzzle, really. If God says that Abraham and Sarah will give birth to a child and that child, through that child and the descendants will come a blessing to all nations, how is that fulfilled is, is a big question. And the book of Revelation says it is fulfilled as... Through Jesus, the good news about a relationship with God goes out beyond Judaism to the whole earth, to all nations, to all people. And so John's image of the people of God as a pregnant woman giving birth to a son represents not just the one-off event of the birth of the Messiah, but it represents what's going on in congregations like ours today. What would it mean if we thought of ourselves as symbolised by this pregnant woman, constantly bringing into being the life that is Christ into the world as a blessing for all nations. Evil doesn't like that. And so the woman is attacked and flees into the wilderness where she's nourished by God for 1,260 days, which is also 42 months, which is also three and a half years, time, times and half a time. And there's all these numbers that Revelation loves. The number just signifies a a definite and not eternal period in which the church is present in the world, facing suffering, facing difficulty, having to persevere, but it's not the perfect number of seven, it's half that. Three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days is 42 months of 30 days a month. It's all very carefully done to say through the use of this number, this period is long, but it's not eternal. It's not perfect. There's another reality out there which we're invited into that's beyond this one. And so in John's vision, the church finds itself in the wilderness, struggling to stay alive, utterly dependent on God for ongoing existence as it seeks to survive the onslaught of the dragon. So using mythological terms, John locates the woman and her other children, the church of John's day, in a new exodus on a path from slavery to promised land. And so here we have symbolically rehearsed the birth of the Messiah 
to the people of Israel, together with a compressed summary of the life, resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And so we come to the final of the three characters I want us to look at. This is the child who rules the nations with a rod of iron. An interesting and unusual image for Jesus. The origin of it comes from Psalm chapter 2, verse 9, a coronation psalm that featured heavily in the Jewish messianic tradition. And in Revelation, Jesus is cast as the fulfilment of the psalm's prophecy that a Davidic king would one day arise and exercise authority with an iron rod over all the nations of the earth. For congregations living under the dominion of Rome, the assurance that ultimate power lies not with the emperor, but with Jesus himself, would have provided both reassurance and motivation. I don't know about you, but I find myself looking at the world around me, wondering where ultimate power lies sometimes. And it often doesn't seem to lie with good. And Revelation at this point says, no, actually that's a misreading of the situation when you see it from heaven's perspective. This child that has come into the world is good news for all nations. So as John's original readers pondered the opposition of the nations to the word of God, John was here offering them a hope that the nations will one day become the inheritance of the church. That all of this faithful witnessing to the world will ultimately prove fruitful. The hope is that the nations will heed the warning and turn to God. And so our two questions with which we began finally begin to come together. Firstly, why is life so difficult? Well, it's difficult because the forces of evil in the world are so overwhelmingly powerful that they deceive both individuals and nations to their will. But is it worth persevering with following Jesus? Well, yes, it is, because that is the only hope for the world. Without the people of Christ following Christ, there is no more hope. It's that big a vision. And bear in mind at this point, John's writing to some tiny little congregations that feel very insignificant and don't feel like they matter at all. And John says, you matter absolutely and eternally because without your witness, the world is lost. But with your witness, the world is one. So when we in our world look around us and see so much suffering and so much deception and so much violence, when we, like those in the first century, feel the temptation to pull our heads back in and try for the quiet life, We're reminded of the faithful witness of Christ in the face of violent opposition and the call on us to be beacons of hope to those who remain lost and oppressed. There is no get-out clause here. We're it. Us and other congregations like us, we're it. We're the hope of the world because it is through us that Christ is born to the world. Each time we gather, each time we worship, each time we name Jesus as Lord, Christ comes in life-giving power to the world again, born in our midst each time. And of course, in that birth of Christ from the people of God, you get the fulfilment of the covenant to Abraham, as all nations are blessed. Here is the message of Revelation in a nutshell, a kind of potted version of salvation history. We are the people of Christ, and Christ is the hope of the nations. So our calling has to be to the whole world, never just to our little corner of it. Because through us, the people of God, this covenant of Abraham finds its fulfilment. Through us comes the blessing to all nations and all peoples. That's why we shouldn't give up.